0: This is the Citizen of Heaven Podcast. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number four, dated April 30th in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's the synopsis. I've been preaching about mountains and valleys, and how God rules in both areas, despite what we may believe from time to time. I've been reading Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose. And as amazingly effective as Lewis and Clark were, it seems they badly misused one of their most valuable resources. I've been hearing nurses spend a lot of their work hours playing cards. I'm pretty sure that's not right. And I'm also pretty sure there isn't anyone out there who has never contracted foot and mouth disease. I've been playing Istanbul with Tuvix Expansions. I'm not a big fan of Expansions generally, but with Istanbul, the more game the better. Are you ready? Here we go! This is what I've been preaching. I turn your attention to 1 Kings chapter 20 today and the story of Ahab. Not necessarily the story that we remember the most. We may remember his encounter with Elijah at Mount Carmel. We may remember his horrible dealings with Naboth, his neighbor, and taking his vineyard and having him executed. Ahab had a lot of... uh, a lot of bad instances in his life, no doubt about it. But I want to direct you to a success in Ahab's life and how he managed to handle that. And it all kind of centers around a statement that is given to us in verse number 28 of First Kings chapter 20, where they are comment, commenting on the history that the Israelites have had with the Arameans or the Syrians, depending on your translation. They have been battling each other on a regular basis during Ahab's reign. And we read in verse number twenty-eight, the man of God came uh, came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, "Thus says the Lord, because the Aramaeans have said the Lord is a god of the mountains, but He is not a god of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord." A great message going out to Ahab here that God is capable of winning any battle, it doesn't matter where the battle takes place. This is a rather revolutionary concept in the ancient world these people tended to believe very strongly that their God was regional. And so therefore, if you had a mountain God, then he tended to win mountain battles. And if you had a valley God, then he tended to win valley battles. And that's how the Arameans thought that they were losing these battles because their God was stronger in one area and the God of heaven was stronger in a different area. And what they came to realize, the hard way, as it turns out, is that God can win any battle. And it doesn't matter whether it is here or there. It doesn't matter whether his force is strong or weak, as we may perceive strength and weakness. I wanted to play a little bit with this idea of mountains and valleys, though, because there is a a spiritual sense in which we encounter mountain experiences and we encounter valley experiences. The Bible talks about these. So many of the close encounters with God that we see occur on mountaintops. Moses at Mount uh, Sinai and and Elijah and Ahab at Mount Carmel and the, the apostles at the Mount of Transfiguration and on and on, on we could go. It seems like there's something special about mountains. You you connect with God in these mountaintop experiences. You feel good about your relationship with God. You be close to God. Maybe it's a maybe it's an altitude thing. Who knows? But there's also a very real sense in which we go through the valley. Psalm 23 verse 4 is probably the most famous example of this, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. There is a an opposite end of the emotional and spiritual spectrum, where we go through valleys. And it's important for us to realize that God is God in both areas, that he is God of the mountains and he is God of the valleys. And we train one another, typically in the Lord's church, to look to God in the valleys. When we are at a funeral or when we have suffered loss or when we're sick, perhaps, or gravely ill, we're encouraged to turn to God and pray to God and ask for his assistance and ask for his guidance and ask for his, his support. And, and we refocus ourselves. We focus on spiritual things and heavenly things. And, and perhaps he offers some short-term comfort for us and even short-term healing. And what a wonderful thing that is to have a God that's involved in our lives. Not necessarily a God who does exactly what we tell him to do whenever we tell him to do it, but a God that does care and that we can believe cares about the things that are going on in our life. This great multitude that is facing Ahab that's discussed in verse number 13, uh, the prophet comes and says, thus says the Lord, have you seen this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's the same sentence there and you see it a lot in the Old Testament. You shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. Uh, I am the true God of heaven. You're going to know because God is capable of winning with many or with few. Remember Jonathan told his armor bearer that on the way into the Philistine camp in 1st Samuel chapter 14 verse 8 it doesn't matter how many people are on God's side God will win the day in his time in his way and it's a privilege for us to be close to him in those situations it is a blessing for us to be able to be near to him in trials we can pray to him and ask for him to guide us through these difficult times James chapter 1 verses 2 through 5 talk about that the the one who seeks out God in these times of difficulty, that he's willing to offer wisdom to the one who asks. In our time of loss, when we're like Job, we say, naked, I came into this world, naked, will I uh, leave it? The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 1, verse 20 and 21. That's a, it should be at least, a very comforting kind of thing for us that God is with us at all times. And the reason that we feel loss is because God blessed us so powerfully in the first place. If he hadn't blessed us, we wouldn't have anything to lose in the first place. And in our failure, especially our spiritual failure, when we confess our sin to God, Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 32, especially, verses 5 through 7, talk about confessing our sin to God, laying before the Lord in our weakest moment, in our direst hour, we have confidence that he's there for us. He is the God of the valleys. But he's also the God of the mountains. And sometimes that can be even more difficult for us to remember. Ahab himself forgets this. After this great victory that God promised and that God delivered, we find out later on in verse number 32, when he hears that Ben-Hadad, the king of the Aramaeans, is alive, he says, uh, is he still alive? He is my brother. And he op- uses this victory as an opportunity to make peace with the enemies of God. Instead of capitalizing on his victory, instead of drawing closer to God, he draws closer to the enemies of God. And that's the way we are oftentimes. We just cannot deal with prosperity. When we get what we want from God, we leave. We have been taken to the mountaintop, and now we're done. Now we have no more use for God. And I fear greatly that... This is a problem for us, that we seek God just for what he can give us in the short term. Moses warned the people about this. Deuteronomy chapter 8 describes this, about verse 11 and following, that they're going, to, they're going to enter into the land. God's going to give them this land, and it's going to be an established land with cities and with vineyards and all these things. But he says, beware. You're going to get everything that you want from God, and then you're going to quit. You're going to abandon. God. And that's exactly what happened. What are those indeed who are at ease in Zion? refer to Amos chapter 6, verse 1. We cannot afford to make that kind of mistake. We cannot afford to quit on God just when he gives us everything that we ask for, just because he does give us everything we ask for. How can we treat the God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing, and with so many physical blessings as well? How can we treat him so dismissively? We have to have confidence to seek him, not only in the valleys, but also in the mountains. Finding these mountaintop experiences to be even more opportunity For us to draw closer to God and feel what He is doing for us. As the song says, pressing on to higher ground. That's the opportunity that we have as the people of God in mountains and in valleys. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. If you had a load of coal in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1803 and you needed to get it to New York City, you would have to take it by way of New Orleans. Think about that for a second. Look at a North American map see how ridiculous that looks by modern standards. There are no highways, there are no trucks, there are no trains. Anything heavy has to be carried by water. And without the Erie Canal, that means going by the way of the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico. So imagine the delight in the mind of Thomas Jefferson, President of the United States, when he found out that he could purchase land all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Possibly, if they could find that elusive Northwest Passage that people had been looking for for 200 years, they would be able to find a water passage all the way to the Pacific, open up trade routes to Asia as well as to Europe. Well, they couldn't find the Northwest Passage, of course, because it doesn't exist. You can check out Google Earth and find out that for yourself. But Lewis and Clark, nevertheless, served an important role, a vital role, in the opening up of the American West for the United States. Stephen Ambrose tells the story in Undaunted Courage, the story of Meriwether Lewis, a biography of his life. And it's a fascinating tale, one that focuses, of course, largely on the expedition to the Northwest trying to find the Columbia River and see if it could be negotiated as a water passage to the Pacific Ocean, which it couldn't as it turns out. They didn't know the way, of course, so they enlisted the help of a 15-year-old young lady named Sacagawea. And I'm told, despite what I might have been taught, uh, taught by the Schoolhouse Rock people, that that's the way it's properly pronounced, Sacagawea. She was a Shoshone girl, six months pregnant at the time, and she was going to help them find their way to the right place and put them in a position where they would be able to negotiate with the, the locals and, and find the horses when they needed and that kind of thing. You would think, it, it would seem rather obvious, that her most important role would be that of translator, since she was the only Native American in the company, and they were going to a place where nobody obviously spoke English. But Mr. Ambrose points out in his biography that Shilakar the did virtually no translating at all on the trip. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark insisted on doing all the negotiations with the natives themselves. They learned a couple of words here and there, including the word for white man, at least what they were told was the word for white man. Uh, scholars now think that since the Shoshone had never seen a white man, they didn't have a word for a white man. This was probably more a word for Stranger. Maybe even a word for an enemy. So you can imagine how that would have gone over. It's astonishing in retrospect that this expedition went as well as it did. And nevertheless it did. But you can't help wondering, couldn't it have gone a whole lot easier? Couldn't it have gone a whole lot better if Lewis and Clark had taken advantage of the resource that was at their disposal? Surely Sacagawea would have been the perfect one to conduct negotiations, to do translations, to facilitate communication between one party and the other but she wasn't used in that way at all it's a it's it's a sad situation when men act all macho and self-sufficient and that kind of thing i suspect there's probably some of that going on here this is man's work anything important surely is going to be done by a man it's it's kind of ridiculous and i would like to think in the modern day we've gotten past this But there is a very real sense, I think, in which we want to take control of a situation. We don't want to delegate to anybody else. And maybe Americans are worse than others. Maybe men are worse than women. I don't know. But there is certainly a very real sense, and we see it in the church, where the idea of delegating to somebody else, the idea of trusting somebody else to do a job well, is just almost hateful to us. We absolutely want to do this on our own without any help at all if we can manage and uh, as little as possible if, if help is absolutely mandatory. I can't help thinking of Proverbs 18 verse 1. He who separates himself uh, seeks his own desire. The text says he argues against all sound wisdom. It, it just doesn't make any sense that a human being would possibly be better off doing everything himself. It, it makes no sense. How could one person possibly be good at everything? That's why husbands and wives work so well together, because men tend to be good at certain things, and women tend to be good at, at other things, and those two things oftentimes do not overlap all that much. And when you have the one helping the other, then everybody is better off. It, it's a, a blessed arrangement where the two halves come together and make a whole. That's the way it is in the Lord's church also. There are certain people who have certain gifts, and certain people who have other gifts, That was the case in the days of spiritual gifts, uh, the supernatural movements of the Holy Spirit. And it's true today. Not everybody can do everything, and that is a good thing. It's it's good that we have ears and eyes and and noses and, and hands and feet and all the different parts of the body of Christ. That's a blessing that we are put in position where we are required by de facto life to depend on one another it is a good thing. It builds relationships. It builds uh, an interdependence one with another. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse number 9 and 10 and 11 uh, say, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Verse 12, if one One can overpower him who is alone. Two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. It just makes sense that the more help we get in the journey of a lifetime, the better. The more help that we can enlist in something that is clearly beyond our capacity, beyond our scope, something that is beyond even our our understanding. If we could help have people alongside of us, helping us through these difficult times, excelling in areas where we may not excel so much, that's a blessing. That's a good thing. But far too often, we're the rugged individualists. We are the, the go-it-alone types. It's, no, it's, it's it's just me. It's all me. And maybe it's because, like the text said in Proverbs chapter 18, we're seeking our own desire. If I include somebody else, that means I have to accommodate their wishes, their wants, their, their desires. I'd rather not do that. If I can just do it all myself, I can do it all my way. And, and as the text also says, it, he argues against all sound wisdom. It, it can't possibly work that way. Functionally, within time, it, it makes no sense to try to do it that way. And it's bad practice as well, because we are training ourselves ultimately to get exactly what we want, exactly when we want. And not only is that impractical and unreasonable in this life, it is in fact contrary to the spirit of Jesus Christ. Because when we come into Jesus Christ, when we become part of his body, the implicit understanding is, and it's explicit too, by the way, is that we cannot do anything significant by ourselves. We have to have help for all of the important things, if from Jesus, if nowhere else. And what a blessing it is that we have access to Jesus and we have these things. And that ought to train us in our existence with one another to be interdependent, to be less prideful, less selfish, more giving, more serving because that's what Jesus has done for us. And he encourages us and really requires us to do the same thing for others. This love that we have for one another needs to be indeed and in truth, as the text says in 1 John 3:18. Not just saying, yes, I love my brother, yes, I love my brethren, but actually trusting our brethren enough to involve them in our lives, to include them, to seek out their welfare to value what they do, including and particularly when they do what we do not do. And hopefully, if the body works the way it should, if all the arms are in line and all the legs are in line and all the ears and the noses and all that, if everybody is doing as they ought, then we present the body of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world and have a real impact for good in this life among those who need the gospel just as badly as we do. It works so much better when we Allow one another to help one another. Allow our brethren to help us. Everybody bringing to the table what they can do, what they excel at, growing new skills, honing the skills we already have, coming together as a community of believers, each one relying on the other, each one loving the other, all growing closer in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It takes real courage to go that way. It's it's not courageous to do it all on your own. It's foolish to do it all on your own. The courage is opening yourself up to brothers and sisters in Christ and allowing them to help you along the way. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Washington State Senator Maureen Walsh. She is a lot more famous now than she was a month ago, and that is not a good thing in this particular situation. I'm, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm going to read this make sure I get this absolutely right. On the Senate floor in the, the State Hall of Washington, by putting these types of mandates on a critical access hospital that literally serves a handful of individuals, I would submit to you those nurses probably do get breaks They probably play cards for a considerable amount of the day. Well, there you go. Sometimes we say things that we ought not say. And sometimes we have enough humility or shame to apologize for it, and it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. I think that Senator Walsh is experiencing that today, and she likely will until the next election cycle. That's the way things are when we do not govern our tongue as we ought. And, and everybody has excuses and everybody has, has rationales, uh, certainly Senator Walsh does, and she's apologized and, and, and all of that. Nevertheless, apologies are not the same thing as time machines, are they? We, we read in James chapter 3, verse 6, I think it is, or 5, that uh, the tongue sets this huge forest afire. You can't undo that. You can't unburn a forest. And you can't put the words back into your mouth. We, we've we all wanted to. We've all been there. We've all said something and, and immediately. just be, Maybe even before they got out of our mouth. We were thinking, that's a mistake. I, I really ought not say that. And then we do. And then we have to deal with it. And sometimes there's no aftermath. And sometimes it affects us for our entire lives. This business about controlling the tongue is is very serious. It is not an easy thing to do. In fact, complete control of the tongue, James seems to indicate, is is folly to even hope for. All we can do is do our best. Be always vigilant, always watchful, always mindful of how easily this can go bad and how quickly it can go bad and how difficult it can be to unburn the forest. Apologies to Senator Walsh. I I refer to Proverbs 10 and verse number eight. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. Well, when the Bible calls you a fool, I guess that's pretty serious business. And certainly it is the case that the one who does not govern his or her tongue uh, can very easily bring about his or her ruin. Again, verse number 10. He who winks the eye causes trouble and a babbling fool will be ruined. There you go. We we don't take serious things seriously sometimes. Maybe that's what the problem is in verse number 10. Uh, maybe part of the problem in verse number 8 is we're just not very interested in listening to wise people tell us what we ought to do. We think that we already have the answers ourselves, and so we go off half-cocked, and, and before too long, we've gotten ourselves in a mess again. It's uh, an age-old story. We've all done it. We've all done it a hundred times. We've all promised we were never going to do it again, and then we went out and did it why is that well it's because governing our tongue is very difficult if not impossible and we should hopefully arrange for circumstances in our life where if we do in fact run astray if we do in fact not govern our tongue as we ought we ought to have the kind of breadth of character and and reputation among the people who are around us where People can look at that and say, you know what, that was that was not smart. Hal messed up there. But you know what, Hal's a good guy. Hal probably didn't mean that. I've heard him talk for 30 years, and he's never said anything like that. I don't think that's who he is. I think he just had a bad day. Thankfully, thank God this is the case, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have that relationship, that loving, supportive, understanding, forgiving relationship hardwired in, baked in, to our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus, we get a family. And not just our Heavenly Father, of course. Not just our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we also get brothers and sisters in Christ who help us along and who are willing, hopefully, when things are going right, who are willing to forgive us and bear with us. I find it interesting in the same context in Proverbs chapter 10, Verse number 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love love covers all transgressions. Now, sometimes Proverbs are not given to us in a context. Sometimes they're just kind of stacked one on top of the other. One has very little to do with the other. But I find it interesting that in the same context where we just talked about in verse number eight and verse number 10 about this babbling fool bringing his own ruination upon himself, we also have verse number 12 where this contrast is given between the actions of hatred and the actions of love. We're not surprised at either of these, I think. We understand that when we have a relationship with somebody where that person is out to get us, they don't like us, they are determined to bring us down. When we give them half an opportunity, they are going to take advantage of that. They're going to run with it. Hatred is, in fact, going to stir up strife. They're going to cause all kinds of turmoil for us as much as possible. The, the senator is experiencing there right now. There are people who do not have her best interests at heart, and they're letting her have it for this. And she put herself in the line of fire. It's it's nobody's fault but her own. She can apologize all day long. It's not going to make any difference. They hated her before. They're going to hate her now. And I'm not taking any sides one way or the other on, on health care or Republicans versus Democrats or anything like that. I'm just saying that's the way human beings are. When we have enemies, our enemies will find a way to get at us. We can't do anything about that what we can do is we can build and nurture a relationship with our friends with our allies with our brethren that is fundamentally different from that the opposite of stirring up strife is covering transgression and now that's not the same thing as pretend like it never happened we're not inventing the time machine we're not we're not saying no 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 uh, there's no such thing as sin but we are saying that it is in our best interests as brothers and sisters in christ to be there to be forgiving to be loving to be nurturing to as much as possible let bygones be bygones forgive and forget as the saying goes move past this love believes all things bears all things hopes all things endures all things we have confidence as brothers and sisters in christ that when we welcome one another into this relationship. We're going to be in this relationship where the vulnerability that we offer is not returned with a stab in the heart, a stab in the back. It does happen that way sometimes, I won't lie to you. Sometimes when we open ourselves up, we make ourselves vulnerable, we get hurt. Yes, absolutely. But the way it's supposed to work, and and in my experience, most of the time, it does work this way. We find in brothers and sisters in Christ, people who are rooting for us, people who want us to succeed. This is the case in in all kinds of nurturing close relationships, especially marriage. To my dying day, I will never understand husbands who get together with other husbands and compare notes about how horrible their wives are, how awful her cooking is or how awful her housekeeping is or, or what she looks like without her makeup or anything. Why in the world would you do that? Why would you deliberately cause somebody else to think poorly or more poorly of someone that you claim to love and wives are the same way they get together with each other and they talk about how he never helps with the dishes or he's he's always you know lazy or won't do the chores or whatever it happens to be that is not an act of love love covers transgressions and and i'm not saying that we lie for one another that's not what covering for transgressions means here not bearing false witness What we are saying, though, is our relationship with one another is more important than circumstances. It's more important than individual, local, situational failures. We build a relationship where if somebody wrongs me and they apologize for it, instead of me putting it on the evening news, I say, I forgive you, brother. We're moving on. And it never comes back again. Have you heard of the the expression stamp collecting? Especially marriage counselors, they talk about this, that, that I do my wife wrong and, and I apologize and she forgives, but she puts a stamp in her book. And the next time she does something wrong and I call her on it, she opens up her book. Hey, well, what about this over here? You did something far worse than I did. That kind of keeping notes, stamp collecting, is going to kill relationships. What we need to do is not highlight the transgressions. We don't want to laminate the transgressions. We want to cover the transgressions so that we can as quickly and as completely and as permanently as possible get back to the idea of being brothers and sisters in Christ. What a wonderful relationship that would be. Can you imagine what would happen if all of our brethren were like that? If we had nobody who would hurt us, if we had nobody who would think us ill. we got so many of those people out there in the world. And we can't do anything about that. But inside the body of Christ... This special, sacred bond that ties us together. We should be above such petty differences. And with God's help, we can be. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But... Stick around for a few more minutes. I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. Istanbul was probably the first mid-weight Euro game that my family picked up when we got into the board gaming hobby. It was delightful. We we loved it. Uh, Istanbul, if you don't know, is a game, it doesn't have a board in the conventional sense. It has uh, many boards. It has uh, 20 uh, large index, size, index card size boards that are placed together. Each one of them represents a bazaar or a mosque or, or a, a, a post office, something like that. Some place that you would go to in Istanbul. And your job is to travel around town collecting gems. And the first one to get six gems wins the game. You can get it by accumulating a lot of money in the markets and buying them at the gem merchant. You can build up your wagon so that you do a more effective way of transporting goods and, and fill it up that way. You can make good with the, the clerics in the mosque and, and get gems over there. There are various ways to do it. And it's, it's a delightful game. We loved it from the first play and we still continue to play it even to this day. But it was a lot to take in. And we probably played it two or three times that first night, and then we left it out because we knew we really liked this game and we wanted to keep playing this game, but it was so complicated to put together all of these pieces and and little red gems here and there, and, and, and it just seemed like it would take upwards of five minutes to assemble this game now we've come to realize after the fact that that there are games that are far more complicated setup wise than this one including games that we now own and play Istanbul is really not that big of a deal at all we have no problem packing it up at at the end of the night but even so at that time when we were first getting used to this it just seemed like it was not too much but bordering on too much and so we played Istanbul for a few months and then we heard about an expansion that had come out. And we are not as we we're not big fans of expansions necessarily. We don't play a game more than maybe five or six times a year or something like that. And so therefore, we're kind of relearning the games all the time. We don't play them enough to need expansions, really. An expansion is extra content, extra characters, uh, that sort of thing. But we had played Istanbul a lot because back then we didn't have nearly as many games as we have now. And so we had played it dozens of times by that point. And, well, maybe an expansion's good. Maybe we can try give this a try. And so we get the expansion. It's the, the, coffee, the Mocha and Bakshish expansion is what it was called. And basically it allows you to sell coffee. And it's five extra boards. Now instead of 20 boards, it's 25 boards. It's even more of a table hog than it was before. And even more complicated. More things to keep track of. Now little coffee bags that you have to keep track of all the time. But we loved it. It was terrific. We we jumped right in. We started playing it, and we loved that. Now another expansion comes out. Well, do we want that one? I don't know if we want that one. Well, we wind up breaking down and buying that one too. And the the letters and seals, and and that's great too. It's the same game, but there's more development. There is more nuance to it. it. It's a deeper experience, a better experience. Now, not everybody's going to agree with that, but but that's how we've felt about Istanbul. It, the more we put into it, the more we get out of it. It's kind of an ex- exciting experience. And it reminds me a little bit of the parable that Jesus tells at the end of this block of parables that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 13. He tells us what the kingdom is going to be like. It's going to be like uh, a man throwing his net in the water. It's going to be like a man who who plants seed in a field. It's going to be like uh, a woman who puts yeast in her, in her bread and, and waits for it to leaven weird analogies that were not at all I'm sure what the disciples were hoping for what they were looking for. They've been anticipating the kingdom their entire life and here it is and here's the king and he's not saying what they expect him to say but for the true disciple this is not bad news this is just a different version of good news. No it's not what we wanted but it's still good because it still comes from God and the more they grow in their understanding of what the kingdom actually is the more anticipating they get of what the kingdom is going to be and their role in it Now, at the end of this, Jesus asks them in verse 51 of Matthew 13, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, which I think is probably kind and uh, exaggerated on their part. I doubt very seriously they understood very well at all. But they want to understand. They're on the path. And Jesus understands that and he appreciates that. They're coming to him for answers. And a lot of people are not doing that. And he commends them for that. And the more they come back, the more answers they're going to get. Jesus explains a couple of his parables to them because he asked the because they asked for an explanation, and because they show themselves to be the ones who want answers. He says in verse fifty-two, "Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old." What an exciting thing that is! The idea of thinking that you're an expert, thinking that you know what the kingdom of heaven is, and then realizing that you don't. And realizing that the things that you thought you understood, the things you thought that you appreciated, are taking on this brand new light. And it's not what you thought it was. It's better than you thought it was. This is why the scribe experiences this. The one who supposedly knows the law. When he comes to the kingdom, the real kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, comes to Jesus as king, he appreciates more and more how wonderful this actual kingdom is, far better than his anticipation. The, the Jews that they had grand expectations about this military kingdom and, and conquest and throwing off the Romans and, and all these grand glorious uh, ideas and and the kingdom is much simpler than that, much more holy than that, much more spiritual than that and it's not what a lot of people wanted, but it is what some people came to want and when they came to the kingdom, when they came to Jesus, whether they're a scribe or a novice, they realized more and more how wonderful the old law was. Because we see Jesus in the plan of salvation and the gospel in prospect on every page of the Old Testament. We only thought we understood Genesis. We only thought we understood the Psalms. We only thought we understood Isaiah. Now, having seen it all fulfilled, we realize how grand and glorious this entire picture is. That's why we read the New Testament to understand the Old Testament, not the other way around. A lot of people read the Old Testament so they can understand the New Testament. That's backward. We have the answers. The answers are in the New Testament. This is the gospel. This is what God has been planning forever. This is the kingdom. It's presented to us in all of its glory. Here it is. Now we can go back to the Old Testament and realize the grand and marvelous plan that God had in mind. That we only had glimpses of. That Isaiah longed to understand better. That Moses longed to understand better. And never were going to. But we do. Because we have looked at the end of the book. We have seen the final chapter. And we see what the kingdom actually is. And more than that, we see what the fate of the kingdom is. And our role in that kingdom, in this life, and our role in the heavenly kingdom that is going to be fully completed after this life is over. The more we understand about Jesus, the more we want to understand. The more we learn, the more we want to learn, the more we learn. And this cycle will go on and go on and go on until the day we die. It's like going into your grandparents' attic. I didn't realize I had all this stuff. God has incredible treasure troves of knowledge and wisdom waiting for you. Jesus will unlock all of it for you. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you will find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 pages a week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, Be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.